The reading this morning is going to be uh, taken from Revelation 21. Um, I'll give you a moment to find uh, Revelation 21 to turn there. I'm going to be reading from uh, the New International Version. Um, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I'll give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who walked and talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be twelve thousand stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fourth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, 
the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Andrew, would you be happy for me to pray for you? I'd love that, thank you. Brilliant. Father God, we thank you for this new day. We thank you, Lord, for the extra hour of sleep we received. We pray, Father, that as Andrew speaks, that you would speak powerfully through him. I pray that every word that is said is faithful to your scriptures. And we pray, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts so that we are ready to receive what you are to say. We praise in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, it is great to have another hour of sleep at night, isn't it? And um, I guess a lot of us will be feeling really quite exhausted. And if we're not feeling exhausting right now, um, then we're wondering um, how we're going to make it through the winter. Because um, as all the experts are telling us, um, this is a respiratory virus, COVID, um, and it's going to do well during the winter. It's going to spread and all the measures that are, they're tiring the whole population out, aren't they? Because uh, we can't spend as much time with our friends as we'd like to um, but we still have to go to work and um, care for people as they get sicker and as the our number doesn't come down below one and we know that that's going to mean hospitals filling up and so on and we're feeling very tired and then in the last peak many people were repurposed um, weren't you many of you no doubt were I had a good friend I was at medical school with him uh, he's a consultant ENT surgeon he leads a cochlear implant program only during the last wave of cases he was retrained as an HCA in ITU so that he could turn people over um, and his operating lists were shut. And I'm sure there were many such people who, who were having to work in unfamiliar ways because the needs in some parts of the health service were so great. And, and there were other people who were just unable to do anything because their part of the health service had been closed down. And um, um, one of my other great friends from medical school um, in the breast screening program, he had almost nothing to do there. And uh, I mean, he might as well have been furloughed um, for all that he had to do. But... Um, that's created an, another sense of exhaustion, hasn't it? Because um, some people's cancer has not been picked up and you must be very aware that some of the patients you would have been seeing over recent months are still there. They've just not been treated yet and they're still to be diagnosed. And um, when, when eventually they come, they'll come sicker um, and there'll be more sadness um, because they're less treatable than they were perhaps. Um, so... Many of you are going to be feeling tired, if not physically, then emotionally tired. And you're getting ready for a winter in which you're going to lose a lot more patience. And uh, that's a pretty exhausting thing to see. Uh, we are 
we are caught up in the middle of death and sickness. And as we were thinking in our first talk from Genesis 4, we're, we're suffering the effects of the fall all over the place. And that's why for our last talk, I wanted us to uh, give ourselves a treat of um, turning to Revelation 21. Because in Revelation 21, you see um, that in great contrast to the effects, the, the efforts that we're trying to make day by day to try and clear up after the fall, I mean, that, that's what you're doing when you walk into a hospital ward. That's what you're doing when you go into... You're, you're trying to clear up after the fall. And God's given us this ability to do that because he's so gracious. We haven't all just died. And we, we don't all die as soon as we get sick. Our fragility is being screened at us all the time. And yet it doesn't lead to where it's supposed to lead yet because God is so patient. And, and you're there as a mark of his patience and his kindness. And you've got things in your hand and things you can do with your hands to save people. But... Um, we can't really save a single one. Even a neonatologist who takes a, a baby born prem at 23 weeks and does amazing things and gives them a full life and they die perhaps at 100 and I don't know what life expectancy will be of a baby born today. Let's say 110. They'll still die. And so I want us to look at the part of the Bible where our great God has dealt even with death, finally. I, I want us almost to luxuriate in that reality, that we might perhaps be able to feed ourselves with it as we go into the days that come. You know, people often find it hard to accept that God could be all-powerful and all-loving because they say, if God was all-powerful, then he can't love us very much because he's left us in a bit of a mess here. Although people say, if, if he was all-loving, then he can't be very powerful because he's left us in a bit of a mess here. They look at the mess that the world is in and perhaps you find yourself doing the same as you walk past patients in your gown and your mask. Can he really be both powerful and all-loving? And certainly it's confusing if you look at the mess of the world to wonder quite. And the Bible says the mess of the world right now is not the place to look to work out how powerful and how loving God is. There are two places you look and one is to look back to the cross and to the coming of Jesus into this world and to see that he exercised immediate, complete, restorative healing power over everybody that he met. No one caught him out. No one tripped him up. Even the ones that were impossible for doctors over years, he could just heal almost, it seems, the way the story's told, almost without thinking about it. Effortless power. Power to burst through death in the lives of other people, people who died in front of him, people who died days before he got there. He could just reverse it all and bring them back to life. Easy, with a word. You see the power of God in the life and ministry of Jesus. And then at the cross, you see the love of God. Because he puts all that power away and he hangs nailed to a cross. Not, not in the kind of the, the, the way of Renaissance art, you know, with his, with his knees together and a robe somehow hung there. Almost certainly, as he was stripped naked on the cross, his knees would have been apart. Because that's how they did it. The whole purpose was utter humiliation. And all the world could see this was a Jewish man being crucified because he was circumcised. And what good was that covenant now? As he lay there utterly powerless, except he wasn't utterly powerless. He chose not to use his power because he was so full of love for this broken world, for you and for me. He allowed himself to be so utterly mocked and to look so weak and ridiculous so that he could endure the consequences that you and I deserve for the way we've treated God already today. 
and will do again tomorrow. And he hung there out of love. And if you want to know how powerful and loving God is, the best place is not to look on a ward where the effects of the fall are still being allowed to rage. The best place is to look into the life and ministry of Jesus. And the second place the Bible encourages us to look is to the very end, to look into Revelation chapter 1, where you see the power and love of God bursting out, finally, over the whole of creation. And um, the, the book of Revelation is one in which you have um, these, these, these cycles of trumpets and bowls and seals and, 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 and horses galloping out, and, and it all takes so long. And you have people under the altar crying out to the Lord, how long is it going to go on? How long is it going to go on? And but one of the big things of the book of Revelation is to say it, it does go on and on and on and on, but not without end. One day God will sort everything out. And in Revelation chapter 21, we see what that's going to look like. How exciting is this? First, we see a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to take a break after a couple of points, just so you know. You can be ready for that. But first, we see a new heaven and a new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, that idea of the first heaven and the first earth passing away is a worrying one to some people, because it seems to feed the idea that actually there is going to be nothing recognisable in the new creation. Um, people wonder sometimes, how, how we, what will people look like there? Um, uh, if it's all being swept away and been completely rebuilt... Um, then uh, maybe even some of the best bits of this life won't be recognisable there. And actually, the language that um, is being used here, it could mean the sort of the complete replacement of everything. But it's the same language as Paul uses in 2 Corinthians, where he says this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. So the same person, he is a new creation she is a new creation. So here, again, the, the universe, it's this universe is a new creation and all the wrong has been swept away. I've no idea how he's going to do that. I've no idea how many bits of the way this world works, from subatomic particles and entropy to, to, to everything in the way it orders and its complexity, the telomeres and everything else that, that um, is part of what it means eventually to age and die. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's going to renew it all. And there's no longer any sea. Now, you might like a beach, and you might like surfing, and that might be a source of distress to you, but um, the point about the book of Revelation is there's no surfing in it. And the sea in the book of Revelation, full of this symbolic language, is where the beasts come from that make life so grotesquely unpleasant for the residents of the earth, and especially for God's people. And if there's no sea, then there's no possibility for those beasts anymore to come and spoil things. They have been destroyed. You read about that in the earlier chapters. That means that there's no more persecution for the people of God. That means there'll be no need for the Barnabas Fund and for open doors in the new creation. That means that there'll be, uh, there'll be no more world powers who are committed to their own greatness and they don't care who has to move out of the way to make space for them. Uh, that means there'll be no more torture There'll be no more of our brothers and sisters around the world being asked today to recant their faith or die. There'll be no more sea, no more beasts, no more persecution in this new heaven and the new earth. That's something to get seriously excited about. But the second thing we see is that there'll be a city dressed as a bride. A city dressed as a bride. And this is an extraordinary 
extraordinary picture, isn't it? The city as it was, was read um, in the second part of that uh, chapter. Did, did you notice the detail that Silas read so beautifully for us? I mean, it's every, every, every gate is a single pearl, huge pearl. Um, the, the, uh, the jewels that the city is filled with, the gold that it's made from. And did you see the size of it? You have to look at your foot, unless you happen to know what a stadia is, you have to look at the footnote. But have a look at the footnote now. Do you see how big the city is? That is about 1,400 miles. That's 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles high, and 1,400... Now, it's a a perfect golden cube. Revelation's full of symbols. We're, We're not actually going to live, I think, in a golden cube. This is saying that if you search... The, the, the imagery of John's day for the things that would describe something as best as it can be, terrible English, as best as it can be, and as perfect and as wonderful as it can be, you go for gold, you go for jewels, you go for pearls, and you go for twelves, and you go for thousands, to say this is going to be absolutely complete and absolutely massive and absolutely wonderful. And every way John can portray what he's seeing in this vision, in these languages, he's saying it's going to be absolutely perfect. And why is it a city? It's a city because it's full of people. And you know what that means? It's a huge, great city. It's, it's, um, I mean, if we, we were to picture it, it's a city that is as long and wide and high as the United Kingdom. It's that big. And, um, and it it's, needs to be that because it's so full. So what that means is that as you and I, you know, try day by day to share the gospel with people so that other people could hear about the Lord Jesus, to be, it, it means that in the end that's going to work. People are going to come to him. It's going to be bulging. Full, huge city. City is about the people, isn't it? And that means that we're going to have all eternity relating to all these people that he's brought in from all over the world, from every different culture and every period of time. He's going to brought them all together so he can spend eternity enjoying each other as perfected human beings in the presence of his, of his glorious perfection and learning from each other what it means for different people to, to live in response to this great God. Uh, there are people that have real problems with cross-culturalism. And uh, there are some Christians that have problems with cross-culturalism. We, we all do in some sense because it's so hard to learn how to see things except through our own eyes. And eternity is going to be about learning really to see things through one another's eyes forever. It's going to be amazing. And here's another thing that some of you will particularly rejoice about. This is one city. We're all going to be in one place. So there'll be no social distancing. There'll be no... Um, internet no tech glitches I don't know if there'll be any internet or not what I'm really saying is there won't be any need to have to sit at a screen waiting for a little circle to stop going round, so we can communicate freely and openly with each other won't that be amazing a city full of people and this is the ultimate happy ending this is a marriage story this is a city dressed as a bride so this is a marriage I don't know who wrote Cinderella perhaps somebody does but Cinderella is a fairy story that borrows almost all its key data from the Bible. As so many fairy stories do, actually. There's only one great story wired into every human being um, is some sense of the way things ought to end if they were going to be happily ever after. And Cinderella is a beautiful example of that. It's just a little parody of the true way things are really going to end. You see what happens? Um, God's people have lived as um, downtrodden servants of the world never regarded with the value with which God esteems them, oppressed by their ugly sisters, Babylon and the beast. And they get, um, they get one day to meet a prince who um, absolutely gives his heart to them and then seems to disappear. 
and they go back um, to their ordinary life and they're waiting for the day in which the prince who had committed himself utterly to her glory and her future at his side arrives to prove that she belongs to him and she will be with him forever. Uh, Cinderella is a great story, but it's a great story because it's based on this one, which is actually not a fairy story. It's actually going to happen. It's true. He will not rest until he has married his bride and brought her into his new home. And as we live with Jesus, who is God, the greatest possible longing you and I could have is fulfilled. That amazing phrase that was read in uh, verse 3 they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That exact phrase is used many times throughout the Bible to summarise the essence of the hope to which God is directing this whole universe in his sovereign plan. I'm going to tell you some of the places where you can find that idea, just to show you how frequent it is how big an idea in the bible it is you can find it in every one of the first five books of the bible uh, genesis 17 8 exodus 6 7 leviticus 11 45 22 33 25 38 and 26 12 numbers 15 41 deuteronomy 29 13 jeremiah 7 23 11 4 24 7 30 22 and 31 1 31 33 32 38 ezekiel 11 20 14 11 36 28 37 23 37 27 and zechariah 8.8. The Old Testament is full of the hope that one day God will be with us and he'll be our God and we will be his people. It's one of the most powerful ways to summarise the whole Christian hope. And it happens here, finally, at the end. Maybe some of us have longed all our lives to be married. You will be. And you'll have missed nothing important. Maybe you are married and it's not the paradise you imagined it would be. You can't get the time you imagined you'd have. You can't get free of tension. For some people, being married is an agony. Or there's a difficulty in one area of your marriage that, marriage that has taken over and seemed to spoil it. That is not the marriage in which you will end. The marriage in which we will end is this one with the Lord Jesus. And as John Piper's book, This Momentary Marriage, the, the marriages we get into here, some of us will have passed away. They're part, in fact, of the old creation, pointing to the beauty and perfection of the marriage here in the new creation. Maybe you are married and you're in marital bliss at the moment. It is as nothing in comparison with what it will be one day to live not married to our earthly spouse, but in um, a fully intimate relationship with our creator. A new heaven and a new earth, a city dressed as a bride, because the story has come to its beautiful end. And in a moment, after a five-minute break, we're going to finish our look at uh, these great verses when we see um, a final end to everything we're doing in our working lives as God winds up medicine. We're going to take a, a five-minute break, and we'll be back. Imagine for a moment the, uh, the situation that you're going back to. Tonight, perhaps, you're on a night shift, or tomorrow as you go back to work. Imagine the suffering that you're going to be so close to. Maybe, uh, maybe you're a radiologist. You're just going to look at pictures, perhaps, uh, all day in a darkened room. 
but every picture you look at is a picture of someone who's dying. Maybe you're a pathologist, you're going to be looking at slides in a laboratory. Every tiny piece of tissue you examine, every blood test you process is, uh, belongs to someone who's dying. Maybe you're going to be beside someone's bed telling them that they're dying. Whether it happens tomorrow or how long it is, you know that's part of your future. It's a big part of what you're going to have to do as a doctor and you won't really have a great deal of time typically to find out very much about the people that you're giving such earth-shattering news to, but you know that most of them are part of a web of relationships that are going to be forever affected by what you say. They're going to pass on your words with great care because you've just changed their reality and changed their future with the things you're going to explain to them. And you're going to make people cry. Not because you're mean, but because you're telling them how it is. And you can't wipe those tears away. Because you can't do anything about, in the end, the reason why they're crying. And that's because you and I are not God. In Revelation 21, verse 3, God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. God himself. Not some great... Um, army of angels who've been sent out with a box of tissues by a god who is a little bit too remote to get involved with every single human being god himself he will wipe every tear from their eyes just occasionally husbands can get it right can't they what a beautiful picture of intimacy when a husband comes to his wife who is in tears and his mind is not just racing onto how to fix the problem. He's putting his arm around in perfect understanding and tenderly wiping away the tears. And our God, as he's wiping away the tears in tenderness, he's able to do so because actually he has had all power to fix the problem. But yet he's personal and intimate with each one as those tears now never need to return because the old order the old order of things has passed away there's a, a kind of TV program isn't there that, that does sort of makeovers whether it's um, personal sort of body makeovers or, or fashion makeovers uh, you know plastic surgery or, um, or, 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 or fashion style um, or whether it's a house being made over. And you know, from time to time, if you're conscious that one or other aspect of your life is a bit of a mess, you know, your body or your dress sense or your house or something, you kind of think, it would be nice if they'd come and do that for me. Um, and you kind of think there are these very, very few people that get selected for that kind of makeover. Um, but most of us just have to carry on with things as they are. And in and, and, and this one, um, everybody gets to be part of it. Everything that really needs sorting out is by a God who can do it brilliantly. And the reality is that you're going to carry on spending your career 
uh, trying to clear up the mess from the fall, and you will do amazing and important good to people. And you'll be loved by many for what you do. And you will save precisely no lives in the end, as I keep saying. And you will get to see many of your failures. But there will come a day uh, when God, in order to spend an eternity with the people that he loves and has always in plan to spend eternity with, will in the end sweep it all away. And there, you know, your MRCPs and your FRCSs will be of absolutely no value whatsoever. So in the end it won't matter a bit if you never manage to get one. Because we're all members and fellows of the Royal College, the great king. And we get to celebrate him on exactly the same level with every kind of person from all over the universe that God has brought together. Vietnamese businessmen and Canadian beggars and German market stallholders and the destitute and the prostitute. Those he has always loved and who he brings in with us to enjoy him. And in verse 5, he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And that's a kindness, isn't it? As we come to our conclusion. Because if he hadn't asked for it to be written down, we wouldn't know anything of what we've just read. So God loving you and me, knowing that we would be looking at this today, sitting exactly where you're sitting right now, wrote it down because he wants you to know this and me to know this because it's trustworthy and true. It is going to happen. Verse 6, he said to me, it is done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. Same promise. I will be their God. They will be their children. Said twice in two paragraphs. And a big part of me wants to finish this look at the chapter at that verse because it's such a great way to finish. And we could go believing that we were loving God by being thoroughly excited about the future he has for us and all his people, by looking forward to the end of days when all the problems are swept away, and, and by, by moving all of our hope, not from what we're going to be able to achieve as we go back to work, but as what he's going to be able to achieve as he continues his endless work. But it isn't where Jesus finishes speaking. Uh, there is another sentence that we're going to have to take into account if we're going to realise what it means to love God as we go from here. And that other sentence is, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. Really to love God who's serious about making everything new means we have to love the God who's willing to clear up those who would otherwise spoil it. people exactly like you and me who are spoiling it for the people around us right now the difference between those who enjoy an eternity with God and those who are excluded from it is not that the ones who will behave well are admitted it's those who are thirsty to the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life and what that means is if you and I are to love the God who's inspired these verses to, for our encouragement now, if we're going to love this God, it means that we need to be willing to go through life, yes, acting as God agents and clearing up after the fall. 
But even more than that, in terms of the professional ways in which we might do that, we need to be willing to, those, to be those who love God by offering people a drink. Jesus Christ is the living water. Jesus Christ offers himself to anybody, and he does it through his people. We had smart meters installed in our home on Friday, and um, I'm insatiably curious about anything a tradesman does. I'm always trying to look over their shoulder and see how they're doing it, and it would have been a, a good thing for me to offer him a cup of tea and coffee, and uh, I actually offered him a pot of honey as he left from my bees, and um, I could have been satisfied with that kind of kindness to him and learnt from his, his skill in handling um, the national grid and the gas pipeline and everything else, and it was great. But if I'm going to be serious about loving God, I can't leave it at being nice to people. If I'm going to be serious about loving God, I have to say, can I offer you another kind of drink? Are you thirsty? And so in God's kindness, and I don't by any means always do this, but I just asked him if he, he was working in the college and he realised that this was a place where we were training people for ministry. And I said, do you have any connection with church? And yes, he's brought up a Catholic. Then he's been to some churches where he's got sickened at the corruption of the pastors. Doesn't your heart break when you hear that kind of thing? And then um, it turned, I said, well, where do you live? And it turns out he lives on the same road as a mate of mine who runs a church in Haringey. And uh, uh, he's met the guy who runs this church. And uh, so um, in God's kindness, that ended up in a conversation which he ended up promising to try a different church. And I wish I'd said, you know, being Christian in the end is just about being thirsty and letting Jesus give you a drink. Because it's such a beautiful picture of what it means to come to Christ. It's not about having to raise your game in every part of your life. It's about knowing you need a drink and coming to him to give you one. So you might like to see how it feels to love God in that kind of way this week. Yes, go back to your medicine with all that energy because we're not yet at the time when we can manage without it. Um, think about whether you're going to spend your life doing that in this country or going to some of the other parts of the world where there's so much more need and that kind of human level. But wherever you go, the need will be the same, not just to fix people's bodies, but to offer them a drink that Jesus might give them, to give them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And that would be a glorious way to go from this conference and to love our great God. Let me uh, close with a prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way in which you thrill our hearts with this certain picture of what is going to happen one day at the end of time. And uh, we, are, we are tired, many of us, with clearing up the mess. And we know we're doing it so imperfectly and so temporarily. It's good to do. It's great, a great way to love people. But you have something in store which is so much more wonderful and means that the greatest way we can love people now as well as caring for their bodies is not to forget to offer them a drink. Please help us find ways to do that. Please help us find ways to do that at work. Please help us to find us to do that among our friends and our families so that they too might be part of the countless millions that fill this perfect city and enjoy you in your perfection forever. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.